The reading is Romans 16. All of it. (laughs) Bear with me. (laughs) I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. She has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Statius. Greet Apollos, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphenea and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles, contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent, and as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason, Sosipater and my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. So my name is David, as you heard. Uh, My wife, Lisa, uh, is at work right now. She can't be here. The kids are at home alone. Don't judge me. Um, They're fine. They're taken care of. Um, Many of you know them, and uh, many of you would find it very amusing that they spend most of their time 
uh, at this stage of life, 8, 10, and 12 years old, uh, mocking my inability to reach my own personal health goals. Um, just this week, uh, post um, Halloween, uh, the kids reminded me that about a year ago I said I wanted to go as the God of War, um, who is pretty ripped and bulked up, and uh, I did not come close to creating my own outfit in my very physical body for that. Um, but they all send their greetings. Uh, we love this church. This church has been very special to us um, over the years. And today I have the privilege to preach on what it actually means when the scripture says we should engage in a holy kiss. I'm kidding. I'm not going to teach on that at all. I'm staying away from that. But this is an amazing end of an incredible letter. So before we jump in, would you just pray with me? Father, uh, as a church, we've come through this amazing journey of, of looking at the book of Romans. And we're humbled at the beauty of it, at the genius of it, at the, the way that your spirit has, has put it together for us to receive and spoken to us through this letter still so many years after it was written. Your grace is truly amazing as you speak to us and still speak to us day after day. And today I pray that through this word, your word, your infallible word, your word that is powerful to affect our hearts and minds and lives and bring change and hope and life, your word that contains you, Jesus, would you come and speak to us this morning through it? We pray in your name. Amen. So three things um, happens, uh, ha- happen in this particular text. It's the last chapter. So, so Paul is, is finishing off what is probably the, the most masterfully crafted piece of theologically, uh, theological and doctrinal literature that we have. It's just absolutely outstanding. And from it, we have received so much over the years. Uh, over the centuries, really. And here we are, he's closing it up, and he chooses to do it in a very particular way. And the way he closes it up is as important as what he's trying to say through it. And there are three sections to this last chapter, and it's, it's very intentionally put together. The first is this incredible personal list of name after name after name that Jess spoke so well. Um, through the reading of the text, name after name of person that has uh, been mentioned specifically by Paul for specific reasons. The second is uh, this, this, this section on the last instructions. What would he want us to know at the end of this incredible piece of literature? What is it that he wants us to remember? And then at the end of that, he says, this doxology of how it will all happen and why, why we can have confidence. We're going to look at those three sections today and try to make sense of them very quickly. Now, in 2012, just before Hurricane Sandy hit New York, we moved to Brooklyn from Harlem. We got in just in time. Half of our stuff was still on the island, and we moved here, and we were safe, and it was fine. And then Sandy hits, and this church, this church, you, many of you, um, go into overdrive to try to help all the crises that's been happening throughout Brooklyn, particularly Red Hook that was hit pretty hard. 
So we enter this community in a very unique little space. The first day we come, we move into our apartment. It was a beautiful apartment on 3rd Street, just up the road here. And it was disastrously dirty. And the streets and Andrew Bell arrive with broom in hand and, and stuff to clean. And we're like, who are you? This is awkward. We're asking you to, to, to clean mouse crap off our apartment and you're a stranger. This is something unique. And then Andrew Bell introduces us that day by buying us food to Vietnamese sandwiches. This is an African that doesn't have all these things at our disposal from where we've come, and it changed our life. <laughs> and there they were just loving us on the first day in all our mess, half, half moved, not even fully moved yet, half our stuff still in Manhattan. And we saw for the first moment a picture of who this church really uh, what, what this church really is like. Then Sandy hits and we go into overdrive. And I remember James Sinero and I being in a car, driving from gas station to gas station, trying to find gas to fill up the, the vehicles that we have to bring relief to people throughout the sides of Brooklyn. It was so funny because... There were these people standing in lines for gas, literally with jerry cans, just waiting. And he and I kind of surreptitiously, there were police presence at every gas station because people were fighting to get to the front of the line for gas. And here we are trying to cut the line, get to the front, risking our own lives. Not really, but that's how it felt. Uh, to, to, to get some gas, to help people. And we'd go to the police office and say, hey, look. We're doing this not for us, and, and, and we try to explain it. Eventually, they gave us some, and we got gas, and we filled up the, the vans that we had to use. And then, then Chris Plunkett, who brought his own car, who had a tank full of gas, offered his, he drove his car to us, offered us to siphon the gas out so that we could use the only gas he has in his car for the sake of the relief efforts. So many of you were, were, were part of that and part of the work that happened in Red Hook. I remember conversations with Bob, who kept, sorry, sorry, my accent might get lost here, Barb, <laughs> not Bob, Barb, who, who, who kept helping me as a foreigner to the complexities of the racial injustice and tensions in America. South Africa had its own, it's very different things, two completely different monsters, same sin in our hearts. But, but she had conversations with me uh, at times in agony to help me at least understand the complexities and how to minister in this environment. It was a gift to me. I remember Chris Martin, who week after week would faithfully greet with joy out front, cold, hot, no matter what. I remember the cones who sought to love kids not from their own womb, all while serving the family week after week on the sound desk and in kids' church. I remember Tim and Karen, who helped us celebrate and love American Thanksgiving. They taught us how to do it well. I remember Friday night prayer meetings that just spontaneously happened without scheduling them. I remember Brian faithfully plugging away on the cello week after week, and he still is doing so. 
the free cheese, loving people, those who are, uh, they were championing the cause of those who are marginalized. And, and, and one of the things that they used to do so well is, is speak about generosity and tithing. They probably still do it so well. Uh, gen- speak about generosity and tithing in a way that they were just like, just uh, uh, explain to me how it, does it make sense at all not to be generous and tithe? They just had this like childlike faith that being generous is like being like Jesus. So how would we not do that? I remember Patrick Boatwright before he was redeemed. I mean married. <laughs> and now my son is in the youth group with Patrick and he's gaining much benefit from just the community that he has still in this church. The bookers and everything they've done, the herons and so many others that just stood out to us along this journey. And Andrew Bell, who, who forced his way into our lives, um, once said to us a few months into us being here, there is this group of ladies who live in a place called Winterfell that, that, that you should meet. They're part of this church, but you haven't met them yet. And we said, well, Andrew, invite them over to our house for dinner. You go do that. And he did. And that night they came over. On the same night, a couple from this church gave us a bed, a great bed. Now, just, just a side note, we moved here with literally six suitcases. That's it. That's all we had. And here we are in a community that's furnishing our apartment for us. So we get this bed, but the problem with this bed, one, is it's dissembled, and two, it's from Ikea. <laughs> now, it's a good quality bed, but assembling an Ikea piece, particularly the second time, could not be a worse thing for me to imagine. So on the same night he invites them for dinner, these, these three ladies arrive, and one of them decides, okay, I, I can do this, and she just picks up the tools and starts assembling this bed in the middle of our lounge. And that was probably the most tangible piece of grace of God that came into our lives in a, a six-month span. And in doing a bed with us, putting it together with us, moving it into the room where it's supposed to be, our hearts were somehow warmed and loved by people who were strangers to us. And that, that, that lady who became uh, <laughs> our personal handy person at that time, um, handy woman if you want to say that, um, has become like an aunt to us. Katie Barnard has through the years of us being part of this church and then moving to Chelsea been a, a person that, ha, that has lived the gospel with us. She, she has, in the worst times after this church, like when we, when we started leading in, in Chelsea, through the worst times that Lisa and I have gone through, she, we would come home from, from just brutal, brutal meetings and brutal things, and she'd be waiting at our home with, the, with a bottle of wine and cheese. And she would just sit and watch us in our worst moments, she, she, I remember one of the very, very, very few fights that Lisa and I ever have. <laughs> she was there on the couch and she just sat quietly 
while Lisa and I were at it trying to resolve uh, some conflict that was coming in from, from the outside. And she just, this is what she did. She just stayed and she just loved. And she buys my kids Christmas presents because, she do, because they don't have aunties and uncles here to do that. And she every Sunday picks up Malachi and brings him to youth group and spends the day with him so that he can have this encounter, one, with an auntie, and two, with the church youth group that really benefits him. This church has been that to me and to us. And the reason I say that is because the picture that Paul is painting is this. The mission of God, joining God in the renewal of all things, does not rely on the ability of the professional pastor to do his job. It relies on every single part of this community to play their part. To be the gospel to a world, the good news lived out. And just like Paul writes about all of these people in Romans, he does this amazing thing. He says, this person who was in prison with me, greet them. And this person who converted, he was the first to convert. And those who host the church in their homes. How many of you host small groups or any kind of church meeting in your homes? Hands up. He's talking about you. He's literally saying, greet them because they matter. Because their contribution matters. He's saying, um, there's there's this person who was just faithful in Christ and, and their faithfulness stands out. I mention them by name because they matter. He mentions a particular few women who worked hard in the Lord. He mentions Rufus, whose mom became a mom to him. And as he mentions name after name after name, he is giving them dignity and value, but he is also saying they are the church and they are through all of these things doing the mission of the church. And the reason this matters so much is because what we do, I confess, is we say this. We measure church by the product that we produce on a Sunday. And that product is produced by the professionals. It's produced by the pastor and it's produced by the staff. And I want you to hear Paul's heart here. Paul's heart here is, wait a minute. The church is beautiful not because there's a professional pastor doing their job, but Because the pastor is doing his job just like everyone else is doing theirs. This is not Caleb's church. This is not the church of the staff. This is your church. This is your house. This is your mission together. I don't think in America we are good at planting churches or planting the gospel. I think what we do more readily is we do startups. I think we plant churches like we do startups. Let's plant an organization. Let's get it viable. Let's get it making money. Let's get it being a good product. Let's Let's build a name for ourselves so that we can reproduce again. And we're going, wait a minute. Paul is saying at the end of this letter, after all the doctrinal things, he's saying, hey, 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 remember the church and its mission is you. It's not how good a product we can put together. 
and what kind of a name for himself the pastor should make. In fact, I read a a little bio of one of the pastors in the city uh, recently, a little while ago, and his bio on his website says, Drew is the author of no books. And that is so startling because the pastor is supposed to be on a career path. Now, there's nothing wrong with writing books. We should be writing books. We should be producing content. But we have defined our church and its worth by the content we produce and the conferences we have. And Paul is undoing that and saying, no, no. The essence of the church is in someone's mother became a mother to me. Thank you so much. These women have worked super hard in their attempt to love the city and live out the mission. Honor them and lift them up. He is telling a different narrative than the Western narrative. And here are the two things that happen when we create the institution, when we try to uh, try to produce the institution and reproduce it. One, we place an ungodly pressure on the pastor that he's never supposed to carry. And I can say this because I don't pastor here. I'm leaving today. But I'm going to say this for the sake of my brother, Caleb Clardy. If you think this church and its health and how good it is rests on his shoulders, you are sorely mistaken. It rests as much on his shoulders as yours. Now, he's got a different kind of gift that he has to be as faithful with as you are faithful with your gift. But we need to take on the ownership of the mission of God and as a church and the belief that we hold in our city as much as anybody who's paid. So one, we place an ungodly pressure on the pastor to kind of be the producing professional. And two, we abdicate ourselves from the truth that this church is as effective in its mission as much as I embrace the fact that it is on my shoulders to do what God has put in my heart to do. I should take as much ownership of the gifts and parts that I need to play as the staff does, as Caleb does, as anybody else does. What does this mean? That means probably that people should trump policies when it comes to doing church. It probably means that we should choose prayer over planning and strategizing. Not that the the second half is wrong. I'm just saying over those things should be prayer. I saw... A beautiful picture in our, um, in our community recently, we, had the, we have this thing called First Tuesday Feast. And um, every first Tuesday of every month, we, we, we have a feast down in our fellowship hall. We, we meet in a church building. And uh, when we arrived, I had a conversation with someone whom I, who I forget who the conversation was with. But I was at this feast, and the feast was a beautiful thing. It, it invited the our church to come and eat together. That's all we did. The point was let's eat together. And then the second point was if there's anybody new to our community, they can get to know people by being present. And we spoke, uh, I spoke with one of, one of the persons in our church and I said, uh, we said, wouldn't it be amazing if one day we arrived at this feast and we put our potluck food down on the tables and then we all left. And we walked the streets of Chelsea and we went to everybody who's down and out and would never be invited and said, hey, would you just come and feast with us tonight? 
And that was such a radical notion at that time, and the energy and the timing wasn't right for it, and we just paused on that and didn't do anything about it. And last month, we had this moment where we did First Tuesday Feast, and it was, in my heart, the most beautiful picture of the church, of the kingdom of heaven that I've ever seen in my stint in New York City. We literally had, I kid you not, we had a room just absolutely jammed with people. We had people who were nightclub owners in Chelsea, want nothing to do with the gospel, but understood that there was this feast that, that was being prepared in a church, and, and they got invited. We invited homeless people and prostitutes off the street, and they came. And we didn't say, let's feed the homeless. We said, let's have a meal with the homeless. And we literally sat next to prostitutes and heard their story. And people, there was this lady who got beat up. She got mugged and beat up that day. And on the train, after getting stitches all over her face, someone on the train said, if you're just looking for a meal tonight, there's a meal down there. And she walked in very, very scared. And she sat down and we ate together and laughed together. We played games together, the old and the young. Every race, it was just... The, the wildest, half the people there were not of our church, and, and the other half was such an eclectic, old, it, it was awkward. <laughs> In fact, th- this one person that got invited um, v- very irresponsibly, one of our very eager uh, leaders invited them to come on in on the way, but the leader was coming to the pre game meeting to talk about how we're going to run it. So, so they invited this person who's an outsider, and this person is kind of standing there in the middle of our meeting where we're talking about what we're doing. It was awkward. And then we took them, and we sat down on the t- uh, at a table with them, and, and halfway through, uh, I realized something's wrong. And I realized that the, our leader who was, who'd invited them kept saying, he... And it wasn't a he, it was a she, and it wasn't clear, and they corrected us, and we laughed about it, and we ate more. It was just magnificent because it was so diverse. Now, the the next thing he goes into is the fact that there are two temptations when he celebrates this diversity. The one temptation is uniformity, and the second one is division. Now, uniformity is really, really, really dangerous, and I want to confess the church is extremely good at demanding uniformity. Not always obviously and overtly, but sometimes just by subtle pressures. If you do not think the way I think, if you do not look the way I look, if I don't fit in, you're not welcome here. That's really hard, and it's completely contrary to the mission of the gospel that says you're accepted and loved as you are, and because you're accepted and loved, you change, not into the image of TGC Park Slope, into the image of Christ with all of our diversity. Anybody see the movie World War Z? I know you're going to be tempted not to put your hand up. Come on, come on. Yes, a few of us. It's a zombie movie. I hate zombie stuff. I don't like it. But Brad Pitt was in it, so I was like, let's see how this goes. And when I watched it, I was fascinated because the virus that caused the zombiness ended up going everywhere, but Israel was preserved. Israel found a way to stay immune to the virus. And Brad Pitt gets sent in like a hero to go and figure out how did you manage to not become like everyone else? 
And he sits with the leader, and the leader says, well, we have the principle of the 10th man. And I was like, oh, this is fascinating. He says, what is that? He says, if there are 10 of us around a table making decisions, and, we, and nine of us agree, then it is the obligation of the last person, the 10th man, to disagree, even if he agrees. So that 10th man has to go out and find a reason why, why he should disagree with the group think that's busy happening. And in, that case, in their case, he went and he found out something that they didn't know. He came back with it and it literally rescued them from the infestation of the zombie movie thing. <laughs> the point is this. Group think and uniformity is very, very dangerous. And we should celebrate diversity and we should welcome people who don't think like us because when we sit with them, we humanize them and we love them as ones made in the image of God rather than seeing them as products that we can use towards our success and gain or rather than villainizing them as someone that just is seeking to, to, to divide. The second part, though, is very real, and it is division, and that's what Paul goes into next. He says, this beautiful diversity has a challenge, and the challenge is that divisions happen when that happens. That he warns them against divisions, and he says, unity is absolutely imperative. Being together is absolutely imperative. Now, now, now this, is, this is fascinating because in a book that wants to make sure you understand true theology and doctrine, this is kind of unexpected. He's just gone through this amazing theological treatise, and then he, he doesn't say this. He doesn't say, I'm going to paint you a picture of God in heaven that waits for you when you're done and you've been faithful, that, that waits for you and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant, because you got it right. He doesn't paint that picture. He says, after everything that I've said, I want you to know that unity is absolutely primal and of great importance as you are the people of God. Now, there's a good reason he says that. He doesn't say you should all think the same or look the same or dress the same, but he says this for a particular reason. The reason unity, I believe, is so important is because it's the very basis of our credible witness to the triune God. See, when God created, he created not because he needed to create or because uh, he felt lack, and so he decided to create us. He created because he was perfectly three in one. He was so unified in the three persons of the Godhead that he was one. And, and because he was so unified and he created out of nothing, what he created was born from his very essence. And what was created from his essence has to be carrying the image of God, which was unity and togetherness in love. Therefore, it says that it is not good for man to be alone. Why? Because he was created to be together. For us to bear the image of God in our world presumes that unity is of utmost importance. And church, I have to confess, this is one thing the church worldwide has been extremely bad at. 
He is saying, I've given you all of this theology. He's saying, I've given you this, this, this theological treatise. And in the end of the day, I'm asking you to remain unified. And here's the irony. We're taught to keep unity, but then we use our teachings to create division. And John said, uh, uh, Jesus says in John 17, he says, I don't, he's busy praying this incredible prayer. He says, I don't ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. This is all of us. He's talking about all of us sitting here today. And he says, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our witness depends on our unity because our unity is the very thing that points to the nature of the God we serve. Unity, therefore, oneness, is not a good byproduct of the gospel. It is the very essence of the gospel itself. Paul is making sure that this is really important. Paul addresses it in his letters when he says, uh, Jesus is making sure that's very important. Paul addresses it when he says, some of you say I follow Apollos, some of you say I follow Paul. Is that not even the point? Don't cause divisions by name. That is not the point at all. And here's the thing, in the, in the Psalms we, we, we're shown that um, where there is unity, God commands a blessing. Now, we're after the blessing. God created for blessing. That is the nature of creation, is that God wants to do, pour out his blessing onto humanity. He created for blessing. Unity is imperative for a blessing. And somehow, we still think that being right and winning arguments is how you get to the place of blessing. And if you've been married for any shape, any, any period of time, you will know that trying to be right in any given argument, even if you are right, as we all think we are, does not lead to blessing. You can be as right as anything, and you could have that argument, and you could win it hands down. And the end product is this kind of sense of heartache and alienation from the other. It is way better to be wrong and close than to be right and lose intimacy. That's what forgiveness is about. Forgiveness is not about saying, I forgive you because you were wrong. Forgiveness is, I actually want to be back with you again. Now, clearly Paul's not saying that being right is and, and thinking rightly is not worth it because this whole book is about theology. So that's absolutely not what he's saying. The last thing I want to touch on quickly is how this happens because unity seems pretty impossible. And the two things in the text that points us to how this will happen and Satan being the one that divides, the, the opposite of God's nature is division. God's nature is unity. The opposite of that is division and breakdown. And he's saying God will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, isn't that amazing? Because what we think is, okay, let's grit our teeth, hunker down and do this thing, and we're going to beat Satan. And God's actually saying, no, 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 that's not what I'm asking at all. 
I'm asking you to live in the truth that what I have done is a ministry of reconciliation and you get to be part of a ministry of reconciliation because of what I have done. And so the the doxology kind of ends with this. It says, Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery, hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes through faith. This echoes Jesus' prayer. That, that if there is unity and this beauty within the church, then outsiders will know that I truly came and the message is true. So he's echoing that in this, in this particular passage. And then it says, to the only wise God be glory through Jesus Christ. Amen. The point is this. We are invited to live in such a way as to give glory to God. We give glory to God by representing his image and his nature in the world out there. And we do that by doing everything we can to celebrate diversity and fight for unity at the same time. And so I ask that you should consider those with whom you feel at odds with. And whether you feel like you truly have done what you can to preserve unity. I ask that you consider what your language is like when you speak about others in this community and in other communities. I've had to repent so much, probably of this most often, because it's so easy to villainize other people and to forget that they have their own story. And so over the years, as I have written and reached out to people who I believe I needed to reconcile with or at least make an effort to reconcile with, that's the most humbling thing. But it is truly the sweetest thing because in that moment, you are engaging in becoming like the God you serve. And when you reach out and become like the God you serve in the unity, it becomes the witness that He is the answer to the brokenness of our world. Church, you are aiming to join God in the renewal of all things. The only way that can happen is if you carry as a church the image of God to a world that needs to see him and experience him. By this, they will know that you are my disciples. By this, they will know that you are like me. That's what Jesus says. That you love one another. And so it is no small thing that I'm going to ask you to pause for a few moments and consider the places or the practices or the people in which you feel like you are at odds with. I saw this, this cartoon again, a New Yorker cartoon from last year, that had the Thanksgiving table set up in the middle of a boxing ring. And I realized, yes, it's become the norm. And if we can't go to Thanksgiving meals or meals with those who are unlike us, and walk away with the deep sense that we still love each other and are gracious to each other, then we're missing what Jesus came to empower us to do. It doesn't mean you have to uniform to, in uniformity conform to what everybody thinks or says, but it does mean that above all else, we will be marked by our love 
for one another. And so would you take a few moments in silence, and then I'll pray for us, and we can come to the table, just to consider those with whom you can right now admit to say, we're not okay. There's, there's some relational breakdown that is still present between me and my spouse, me and my kids, me and my family, me and my boss, me and my colleagues, whatever that person is, just bring them to the Lord. And then we're going we, we're gonna to, through the, the, the communion table, we're going to say, God, thank you that you did everything possible to reconcile us to yourself. And we're going to ask ourselves the question, God, what do I need to do? What pride should I lay down? What practice can I do now towards people with whom there is still disunity? So think of those names. Think of those people. Let the Spirit of God just speak to your heart for a moment. Think of those of whom you've, you, you've spoken in unkind ways. Where criticism has been the tone of, of our language. Criticism as to how things have happened. And I'm going to say this just very briefly because I can because I'm leaving today. But it's really easy for a church to criticize its leaders. It's so easy to do that. I do that. So consider even that. Like, Just consider if, if your responsibility towards your own leaders has been one where you have, you have criticized behind the scenes or you have fought for unity and building them up. Consider if there's anything that you can do, a letter, a text, to write, to ask forgiveness, to... To speak blessing instead of criticism. Uh, to repent of, of, of gossip if it was something behind the scenes. But something that would thrust you and this church forward into being the bearers of the image of the triune God. And then as you come to the table today, we come to this incredible picture that we, we, we have no better one where you're going to come and break a piece of bread off this loaf. And as you do it, you are declaring, Jesus, you were broken and divided so that we can be unified. You are physically reminding yourself that Jesus did everything possible to reconcile you to the Father, and because you are reconciled to the Father through the body broken and the blood shed, you have everything you need to restore broken relationships in your life and to display a unity. And the second thing you're going to do is as you do this, you're going to go, Father, help me to be broken for the sake of other people. I'm prepared to pay a price. I'm prepared to be the body of Christ to the world who needs to see it. So, Father, we thank you for these symbols. We thank you that they are not just bread 
and not just a cup that we can drink, but that they point us to the true reality that we often forget, that you have done everything, all that it takes for us to live in the full promises of the gospel. The good news, Jesus, that you came, you took upon yourself all the brokenness, the division, the hurt, the anguish, and you gave us the blessing that comes from being reunited to the Father. And we take this bread today in your name with gratitude, and we take this bread today as a reminder that we should do the same as you did, that as we love, we lay down our lives for those around us. Instead of breaking them down, let's lay down our lives. God, help us. We need grace. And as we come to the table, would you pour out your grace for the sake of the unity in Christ? pray this in your name. Amen. When you're ready, please make your way uh, to the front and partake of the table.